Skill. How you doing, everyone? Uh, peace, brother. Peace, brother. Hey, man. So we got another another great show for you lined up this week. We're getting the blackest hour of your whole life. <laughs> not even the week, not the month. Your whole life. You heard right. Um, you know, and uh, as is tradition on this show, and we function in the spirit of Sankofa, right? The idea is that you understand history, uh, then you uh, kind of understand where you're going. Right? You don't move forward until you look back. So the idea that the history always repeats itself, and it seems like black history <laughs> repeats itself more than anything else. Oh, uh, but, <laughs> so we're trying to stop the cycle. We're trying to be the change we want to see in the world. So how's your week, brother Rob? Pretty good all together. I mean, arthritis is going, but other than that, I'm all right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get. I mean, I, I had a funeral this week, this past yeah. week. A uh, lady was 102 years old. Oh, uh, nice. With the husbands. Uh, if anybody from Southeast mm-hmm. Queens, and you've been a, a long time, the husband, she was 101 years old. She was one of the first black families to move around here. Mm-hmm. My brother, husband, came to the liquor store around here. They still own a block over here. I mean, one of the, 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 the long time foundational Southeast Queens families, I would say. Uh, so um, she'll be missed, but uh, <laughs> her legacy will. Will undoubtedly live on again with all them kids <laughs> and, and great grandkids. So that's beautiful. Um, uh, to to get it started out, I just want to give a today's a busy day in 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 a, in a Black History Center. Uh, today is the birthday of uh, Sister Bessie Smith. If you're into blues. Um, the uh, Ma, they just came out with uh, Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom, that movie, the last movie. Uh, 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 Chad Chadwick Boseman did, right? Uh, and so Ma Rainey's the mother of the blues, and they they call Bessie Smith the Empress of the Blues, and she came up under Ma Rainey. Mm-hmm. You know, Age of the Blues. This is uh, the 1920s, Roaring Twenties. Yeah. And, um, those are one of our great black voices, Sister Bessie Smith, and then the Jazz Age, coming out of Chattanooga. So happy birthday to you. Uh, today is also the birthday of Howard Washington, uh, the first black mayor of Chicago. <clears throat> and that's uh, important. <laughs> it's appropriate 
because you know uh, when you look at black representation, you wonder what it should look like, and Harold Washington is it? You know, someone who um, who uh, represented his people, advocated for his people. Uh, he mysteriously was killed. <laughs> mysteriously, <laughs> guy. I think he died of a brain aneurysm. Real hmm. suspicious, like. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So you just you just drop dead. Mm. Which is uh, again, I, I guess that's a good thing. Activism's <laughs> hard, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he died under very suspicious uh, circumstances. But uh, brother Harold Washington, first black man in Chicago, uh, my mentor, uh, my mentors actually campaigned for him when he won that election. They went out to Chicago, stayed a few weeks, and tried oh, to work wow. on his campaign. Uh, the Whiteheads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Harold Washington won the great one. Um, also, we have uh, <laughs> the great, you know, when we talk about, uh, like I reference the boys a lot, WB the boys. I also reference uh, Marcus Garvey quite a bit. And um, they were giants during that same Harlem Renaissance, like, along with Bessie Smith. The giants, the political giants in the country, WB the boys and, and and Marcus Garvey. And there was a third big player we don't really, uh, again, he kind of gets, I'm not sure if he gets forgotten in history, but A. Philip Randolph, right? Mm. Um, we talk about de- democratic socialism today, but he was one of the original socialists, right? <laughs> uh, um, uh, one of the organizers for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, uh, which was uh, the first mainly uh, black labor union. Mm. Uh, and again, and so the, the socialist movement really came out of the the union organizing. And so, um, well, unions Bay- have been crushed for a long time. Socialism has been given a mostly bad name. Bernie Sanders movement kind of rehabilitated it a little bit, but then they've been completely sidelined. So, socialism is back to having a bad rotation almost. <laughs> and the association of socialism and communism during the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Really? And they're cooking up a new Red Scare now, so yeah. and everything's on repeat. <laughs> you don't understand it. In the past, you, you failed to repeat it. But A. Philip Randolph uh, was one of the initial organizers of the March on Washington, right? Uh, he didn't march because he got some concessions, right? Um, he got he integrated the military, right? And what, so he he didn't march on Washington. He was one. He ended up still doing it with Martin Luther King uh, decades later. But in exchange, 20 years later, in exchange for that, he was the one who integrated and did segregation in armed forces. A. Philip Randolph. He, he's the one who pushed uh, the, the the president at the time, successfully pressured uh, Harry S. Truman. I, 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 so the reason why that's significant is uh, similar to how uh, Martin Luther King pressured uh, LBJ for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. I argue that these folks Rob, me and you had this conversation. Guys like A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King, they're probably the best politicians we've ever had. They got yeah. them happen without holding public office. <laughs> without holding public office and was able to not just get major legislation, but really virulently changed public opinion. It said they made cultural changes. Yeah. Aesop Crandall was nothing that's not really quite well known. Is that so? 
Marcus Garvey came to America, I think it was 1917, if I'm not mistaken. Marcus Garvey comes to America in 1917. His first uh, speaking gig, uh, who gave it to him? A. Philip Randolph in Harlem. First time he was spoken in front of an audience in Harlem, it was because of April Randolph. I mean, so we were talking, legends begat legends. And and the funny thing is, um, you know, they like like uh, Garvey and the boys. A. Philip Randolph also, they all kind of fell out with each other. And I think um, they might have shot at each other's offices. It got real heat. <laughs> That's a little more than just a falling out. Hey, listen, if you're soft, I mean, <laughs> hey, you shot me. It's no big deal. Oh, <laughs> it I me, got better. Took a flash one, ain't no big deal. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so A. Hey, Philip Randolph is credited with giving Martin Luther King um, one of his first speaking engagements. And, you know, one of the true, I mean, socialists, if you talk about socialists, in a real healthy sense, A. Philip Randolph, mm-hmm. along with my other brother, Hubert Harrison. If you don't know Hubert Harrison, please read about it. Uh, again, these are giants of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, uh, and his publication, I believe, A. Philip Randolph's publication is called The Cruise Messenger. Messenger, I believe, was the um, was his publication. So the boys had the Crusade. Oh, don't get me to lying. Negro World was UNIA. I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on the NAACP. Uh, the WB boys was the editor. I should know this. And, um, um, and those publications are, are relevant because when you think of all the black poets, that's where they worked. They worked at these black publications. Uh, that's how they got their poetry out and their work out was through these black uh, periodicals, which are headed by A. Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey, WB Bo- the boys respectively. So happy birthday to the w, uh, A. Philip Randolph. Those older journals act like a time capsule, too. It's kind of a shame that we don't have that kind of a press anymore. Yeah, you ain't lying. You know, to deal with a lot of the issues that we do have today, it, we've got the major outlets, but most people, I mean, nobody's collecting newspapers anymore, <laughs> you know, unless you're a shut-in or something. Everything <laughs> is digital, so it's, I don't know, to me, it's, we're losing a lot of information. And it becomes easier to edit our history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and on a, a lighter note, uh, we lost two giants in history pretty much on, on the same day, which is April 12th. Uh, one in 1989 and the other one in 1981. Uh, it wasn't on their birthday, was it? No, it wasn't their birthday. <laughs> So that would be uh, uh, Rich Sugar Ray Robinson, the greatest yeah. boxer of all time, died on April 12, 1989. And Joe Lewis, uh, the, great, the great heavyweight, uh, died in uh, April 12, 1981. I mean, in the boxing thing, um, both didn't really end gloriously. I think Joe Lewis uh, was working at a bank in Harlem on 125th Street, a security guard. Um, uh, he had these great matches with uh, Max Schmeling, and he beat Max Schmeling, uh, mm-hmm. German boxer, of course. Again, this is during uh, coming up the period coming up to World War II. But Max Schmeling, 
even though he's famous for losing to Joe Lewis, and Joe Lewis is, you know, I think he's he's known for having the held a heavyweight title the longest in boxing history. Uh, Max Schmeling, after retirement, was able to procure, again, a German, <laughs> was able to procure a deal with Coca-Cola, and he owned a, <laughs> a body. <laughs> so he died as a man. <laughs> Joe Lewis died as a security guard in the band. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, if you don't know these stories, uh, you you think it works out different. That's also a failing a failure for us too, though. And that's a failure of our culture, you know, writ large, but also of you know the neighborhood and the community. I mean, for fuck's sake. Maybe he was happy being a security guard. I don't know. He could have been a happy man. I didn't know him personally, <laughs> but yeah, you were. Absolutely really? Right. <laughs> you know? And um we couldn't and, get uh, that guy a fucking Nike's contract or nothing? Nothing? People? Really? Fuck out of here. Sugar Ray Robinson. Uh he died of dementia. I mean Sugar Ray Robinson, I mean, they don't have boxes like this anymore. I mean Sugar Ray Robinson was Muhammad Ali's hero. Mm. And Sugar Ray Robinson's boxing record was one hundred seventy three with nineteen losses. 173 wins, 109 knockouts, 19 losses, six draws, two no contests. He had 200 fights, pro fights, and this doesn't even count amateurs. Are we sure it was dementia and not just like brain injury? That's a yeah, lot of fights. This is before they had 12 rounders. This is where you fought until you dropped. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but Sugar Ray Robinson is something special. Our uh, best pound for pound boxer of all time. I don't even think that's even debatable. Sugar Ray Robinson. They just boxed the whole time. So, um, and actually, um, one of the things that drove Ali was that when he met Sugar Ray Robinson and how Sugar Ray Robinson dealt with him, he said, I never want to be like Sugar Ray Robinson. That's why he was all, that's why Ali was always very open. Sugar Ray Robinson was a superstar and he, he carried himself like a superstar. If <laughs> you are a peon, he treats you like a peon. Mm. Uh, Ali, nah, I want to be up to people. I never want to treat anybody like that. So he made everybody he ever met. Ali, you know, we are nothing more than a combination of our life experiences. And that life experience really kind of drove in home who Ali became. So uh, we want to thank Sugar Ray Robinson for that. <laughs> yeah. Well. But, um, yeah, and that's the, also, that's the, that's the birthday shout out. Uh, actually, one more birthday shout out is, and this is one that I I wanted to um, introduce because uh, you just want you know some figures in history like they're not popular, but they res they resonate yeah with me because of uh, the importance of black institutions. Um, I mean, I say black institutions because you can't really have communities without institutions, and if you're truly going to yeah, unless you're inferior and you need somebody else to do it for you. Right? And I don't believe us to be inferior. So it's always interesting to see how we create things. And so um, uh, Richard H. Kane, uh, who lived from uh, 1825 to 1887, um, uh, was a U.S. Uh, congressperson, actually, out of South Carolina. Uh, again, of course, during Reconstruction, <laughs> you know that that little thirteen-year period where they was uh, they they let us uh, uh, achieve some stuff and then they mm. took it right away. 
Holy crap, they're actually doing things. Stop! <laughs> so he uh, he was a missionary with the AME Church. Mm. And you, if anybody, you know me, you know how much I admire the AME Church. Mm. I mean, black organization. I mean, the, when you talk about the black church, that's where it starts. Yeah. Everything comes out of that. And one um, of the few institutions out there still doing stuff. I mean, it's still around. It still exists. I mean, not a lot of you do, but it still exists. Um, hey, that's saying something. We don't have much, many organizations that are still even operational. You know, some of the ones that are just selling stickers and living off their name. Yeah, you're right. And so uh, uh, Richard H. Kane did two things, right? One, he founded the Black Town. He founded, he's the founder of Lincolnville, South Carolina. Like, he actually founded the town. And he also founded uh, Paul Quinn College. Um, Paul Quinn College is in Dallas, Texas. Um, he also served as his president at the beginning of his founding. Um, the reason why Paul Quinn College, you probably never heard of it, is so, uh, like, when we talk about Howard University, how the university started by a white dude? Um, Otis P. Howard, white guy. Uh, uh, Spellman, mm-hmm. actually founded by Rockefeller's wife. Spellman is her, her maiden name, right? So um, uh, the Hampton Institute founded by, by I think, the, a white Christian group. I mean, all, there's a lot of HBCUs, but they're actually founded by white folks for the benefits of blacks. Again, uh, I'm not a fan of handouts, in one, I'm just going to say like that. But uh, that's all well and good. I know, you know these, these institutions still created some really great folks. Don't get me wrong. But you have to, at some point, show your ability to do things. And so the reason why Paul Quinn College is, is significant to me, because there's a handful of colleges in this country, universities, that were actually founded by blacks. And the, and it helps also happens that those blacks were members of the AME Church. The AME Church <laughs> organization actually formed universities. You've heard me mm-hmm. discuss before. And this is one of the guys who helped us uh, form those, those universities. So the AME Church founded Wilberforce University in Ohio, which uh, how Richard Kane attended. It also founded uh, Richard uh, Morris Brown in Atlanta, ATL, stand up. And it, the, the Amy Church founded. If you live in South Carolina and Columbia, South Carolina, it founded Allen University, and um, <clears throat> so and a few two other minor ones, or oh, uh, two other schools. But the, that's so important when you found in institutions and you found in towns, and we can't do that now. <laughs> Why not? You still find a town. Still I don't think you make institutions. Like, they have people just rather go live in a big city. I mean, this is the willpower. Well, sure. But I mean, that's the whole—that's the whole, you know, contest. People, of course, are going to go want to live in the city, but because they can find work there. You got if you're going to make a town, you got to make incentives so people want to live there. You got to create work. And I can't find exactly. work. You gotta, you well, that—that's the challenge in creating a town. <laughs> that's a crap. And if you're actually creating a town, there's going to be work. But what exactly. kind of work? You're not going to, you know. Not everybody can work in an office because the offices aren't built yet. So you're going to be starting with different skill sets. So um, Richard H. Kane, who I just recently, I just came across recently, um, was very impressive in that manner. Uh, but now let's get down to the crux of it. So um, <laughs> uh, today we also wanted to, to look into um, two institutions, actually. Hmm. One we can start off with called the Free African Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Free African Society was founded in 17, 
It is the precursor to the AME Church. It was actually founded by Richard Allen. So before Richard Allen founded the AME Church in 1814, he founded the Free African Society. And this is right after he was able to purchase his freedom because Richard Allen was a slave. He and Epsilon Jones, who was another, another person who was enslaved and able to purchase their freedom, they founded the Free African Society, which is a mutual aid society. I mean, so they, this is the group that started the first public schools in the country, um, uh, giving free education and um, medical services to the poor folks, you know, black, white, Indian, everybody, and, um, and helping fugitive slaves, of course. Um, uh, it, it's just remarkable that your first pre-public schools would have been created by slaves. So we're talking about the people with the least given the most <laughs> right because they're in a position to understand it and then again what does what does the ruling elite do do they make public schools because it's a good no they make public schools because it's you know we need some way to pacify we need some way to in culture children to basically indoctrinate Agreed, agreed. We, we pick up these public goods and expand them, but for all the wrong reasons. And, and the reason why that's significant, because that was actually started around April. This was around the month that, that the Reactive Society was started in, 18, uh, in 1787. Hmm. And what's really remarkable, and that is, is the really impressive part. Now, uh, in the in the show running, so we're going to talk about something called the African Insurance Company. Mm-hmm. Now, my brother Rob, what is the African Insurance Company? It sounds like I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds like something that's like a mutual aid again, probably purchasing life insurance and group policies. Now, when was that founded? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. So, in 1810, looking at the Free African Society, and this is interesting to me too. Hmm. <laughs> that. In the coming out in middle of slavery, we all still identify as African, the African Methodist Episcopalian Church, the free well, because African. you, you can't really Africa. divide yourselves up into you know, <laughs> I'm West Indian, okay, that's special. No, you black, nigga. <laughs> are you free? That, that was that was the big dis, you know, distinction there. Are you free or are you enslaved? You know, you didn't have time to be bougie yet. And if you're free, you know, it could be temporary because that could be taken away like that. Okay. <laughs> that was a very conspicuous existence. But in nineteen in 1810, so roughly 23 years after the founding of the Free African Society, that was the first black-owned insurance company. Hmm. Do we have a black-owned insurance company today? I'm, not, I'm sure we do, but I'm not sure. <laughs> They're definitely not like a national brand. Oh, I'm sure we don't. <laughs> I'm asking because I looked. I looked. I, I, oh, I, there aren't any left? Hey, tell me if I'm wrong. Please, audience, tell me if I'm wrong. And and reason why... There's a couple is, of fraternal societies or something out there, but that's about it, probably. Why this is significant, because I was having a conversation a few years back with my grandfather, and, you know, grandfather, um, you know, he remembers um, not being able to go to certain restaurants mm-hmm. and not being able to stop in certain towns. And so he said, like, it's better now. And I was like, how is it better now? Back then, even if you couldn't go to certain places, you owned things. There was towns that were yours. Yeah, but you, you had to it. worry about defending that town like a 
fucking castle. You, you still got to defend what you got now, right? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't need to have a siege wall because the white town over there might be upset because we're doing better business. But now you don't you even know. have now you don't have anything. Now you don't have a wall. Oh no, I'm not saying. Look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have things. I'm just saying you have to understand that the situation that they were dealing with. They tried to have towns without the siege wall, and look what happened. So now it's to the point where you either had to do that, and we went for the next best thing. We didn't want to have to have a siege mentality all the time, so we tried to convince the sane ones out there to convince their less sane brethren, you know, that integration was better than just bloodshed. Yeah, but now you don't own nothing. We could still own things. It's but just, you don't. Because you know, <laughs> it became easier not to. Because so nobody, did... honestly, nobody owns anything right now. You have like a handful of companies that own everything. So we've gotten to the point where we were like, hey, how about integration? They went, sure. And then you just integrated everybody into the same, you know, worker bee case. That's it. That's what it came down to. We couldn't have our special slave case anymore because they decided, fuck, they're human and they want to be free. Okay, fine. So we'll just make everybody a fucking wage slave and just forget about it. That's what it came down to. And in that case, if that was completely arbitrary, then at least some of those companies would still be back on. But none of them won. Not a one. Not a one. Because we were, never in a, we were never in a position to be one of those big companies that would end up at the end of the... When you finish shuffling the hands... You were never going to be one of those big major six companies. Like, how many media companies are there? There's six. So I don't care if you think you're a lefty or righty, whatever you're getting your media from, it's one of the same ones. You're all feeding from the same pool. Fucking suckers. How important is to have one? Or is it not that big of a deal? I honestly don't think it's that big of a deal. Because having one in this environment, what are you really doing? You have, you it, it's more up. important. It's more important to actually get your message out than to even have that platform. You'd be better off with a pirate radio station that actually has dedicated listeners and a dedicated following that's actually motivated and active than having a huge network that just spills the same garbage onto the airways that we do now. Look at, look at an outfit that preaches to the left like MSNBC. They're doing nothing but propaganda 24-7, preaching to the neoliberal choir. But to what effect? All it does is put people to sleep. That, that's the big effect. We don't want to put people to sleep, so even owning a platform doesn't do anything. We need people who are active and involved. But so if you don't own a platform, then they block you out because you don't control they, nothing. Then you're begging. You're in the same situation anyway. The only way you would even own a platform today, you're talking about owning an actual outlet like Google no, or Alphabet. And, you're talking about owning a Twitter. No, <clears> not a uh, institutions, institutions, not necessarily any single company. Institutions. You 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 used to have institutions, meaning uh, there's Providence Hospital in Chicago. Mm -hmm. That was a black-owned hospital, right? A black-owned hospital. There are Jewish institutions in this country that that will yeah, hire. But you also, yeah, but they also there have more than one. Yeah, we have more than one, but I don't even have one. I didn't say I was satisfied with one. I'm saying, but you don't even have one. Mm. There are Jewish institutions that will look out for the interests of Jewish folks. There are Asian institutions sure. that will look out for Because we took a different fight. We took a different tack in this country because we were alone, quite frankly. 
when the Jews came here and all the shit that they've been through. But you, you used to have them, though. You had your own hospitals. You had your own insurance. But we are alone. Nobody you know, is coming. It was, you were in the middle of slavery at that point when you owned those. No, we were in the middle of slavery, but we were together. And we were fighting in one unit, more or less. Once we got to the point where it was like, okay, when it comes down to a matter of survival, we can integrate. We integrate. But now we're, instead of fighting for our own advancement and having that mobilized unit, fighting for these institutions and creating new things, we're like, all right, we're going to just blend in with everyone else for survival. And they still didn't only really accept us, but we got along. These other groups, these other groups were able to stay cohesive in their efforts. That's why you have, like even today, you even have more diverse groups within that. You have Asian Americans and you have the Southeast Asians who work together. And all these different groups, they pile on one another and they get, they advance. Like you said, you have Jewish organizations that can reach all the way back to organizations and that are tied to Israel and Israel has lobby groups that are tied to buying our fucking politicians. So they got support. What do we got? We don't fight the same way. We have fought, we have fought to help everyone else and nobody else comes to get our back. Israel. There is not a single group that will show up at a BLM March and be about a fucking thing. Not a single group will show up and help us do anything. Israel itself is a new idea. Yeah, I know. That goes back to 1810. Israel didn't go back to 1945. (laughs) Yeah, but Israel has how many interested groups backing its creation to have it be made? There There was a concerted effort to make that a thing for a reason. The closest we ever had to that was when they tried to kick everybody out and form Liberia. We also had Haiti. Haiti. Haiti was supposed to be it too, right? No, Haiti was them taking their own destiny in their hands and slaughtering motherfuckers until they left. Well, that's what I'm talking about. What you talking about? I thought we were talking about that. <laughs> I thought that's what we were talking about. I'm sorry. But it, is a, it was a completely different tact that we took in the United States. And we be, for us, but it was what, about proving... Huh? Why do you think we took that tactic? I think, in a way, it was the better way. It was it was the more moral. <laughs> moral. Yeah, and that's always a handicap. Honestly, morality is a handicap. But yeah, it is. It depends on what you want to fight for. I always think fought, negotiate. <laughs> you know, we fought to actually be the better person. Honestly, and it comes down to what we've said before. We wanted to actually make those words mean something. You can't say all men are created equal and then start picking and choosing. And the irony is, you know, the exact same people who would sit there and condemn you for it. All we did was keep the you know water back for a little while because it isn't evident enough. That whole all men are created shit. Yeah, that's pretty fudgeable. They, they, they will change that on a heartbeat. Doesn't matter what color your skin actually is. Ask an Italian. Ask an Irishman. Yeah, they got, institutions, they got Irish institutions too. <laughs> yeah, but guess what? Those Italians and those Irish, they formed those institutions because before they were white, they were Italian, and they were Irish. And that was the only thing that they had. We should have learned that lesson and stuck to that, but we didn't. We decided we were going to be nice and try and educate and integrate people and make them better. You know, and look at where it gets us. 
if you don't own an institution, how are you going to integrate it? You can't because you can't let people in. You can only we were never. The whole scheme was, okay, we can keep them from owning anything. So our push wasn't to integrate them into our institutions. It was so that we our institutions that we did make could survive and then eventually be accepted by the wider American population. Yeah. All these other groups, all these other groups, they were like, they were like, hey, can we do this integration thing too? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. You can be part of the party. Meanwhile, we're like, hey, you know, we fucked up because we were like, okay, what does it actually mean to be part of that party? It means that you got to maintain your own. You know, again, the reason why, again, I frame it in a position of inferiority, right? If you act inferior, then you are inferior. We are not inferior because we did all these things, you know. And every time we do it, they gang up and destroy them. (laughs) Or they sell out or they get watered down. It's not not like a one-time thing. We make these institutions, but our opponents in the greater society – at large, they don't get tired. They keep coming. So you can't get tired either. But my point is, you know, so someone blows your stuff up, you build mm-hmm. it again. You know what I mean? They built it. They, 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 they flew two, two planes into the Twin Towers. They didn't say, oh, you know, we tried to build towers. Look what you did. No, they built them up again. Now you got a new tower. That's all. <laughs> you rebuild. Fire burned yeah. it down. You build it again. How many times has Chicago been burned down? Who knows? They build it back up. Mm-hmm. They don't say, okay, oh, they, oh, we tried. No, 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 no. They won't, you don't accept the seat. But um, we're about at the halfway point. We're going to take a quick break, brothers and sisters. Sit tight. Uh, this is on the Wake Up Radio. Sister Cindy Ashby on the board, <laughs> producer, engineer, extraordinaire. On the Wake Up Radio, The Appeal, a.k.a. Walker's Appeal. We'll be right back. Welcome back, brothers and sisters, on the Wake Up Radio family. This is The Appeal, a.k.a. Walker's Appeal. I am Oz Bryant, my co-host. Uh, sometimes they call me F. <laughs> Williams. <laughs> Gotta put that with some more energy on that. Put some respect on that. <laughs> uh, Max, I still um, got to fill out that paperwork. You know what I'm talking about. Boom. So, uh, man, uh, this is a great show. It's a great show. Um, something else happened this week, uh, April 13th, I believe it was, uh, in Chicago, um, 2003. Uh, uh, a well-known uh, pastor by the name of Jeremy, Jer- Jeremiah Wright gave uh, a sermon, a Sunday sermon. Uh, it was called Confusing God and Government. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, you know, if you listen to it, it, it sounds like anything you might hear in a black church. But what made this significant was that one of the parishioners mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't your average, what is your average parishioner? And so this is 2003. And this, this sermon came up as a topic of discussion five years later in 2008. As uh, Barack Obama, <laughs> then a member of uh, of Jeremiah's, Jeremiah Wright's church, was asked his opinion <laughs> on Jeremiah's uh, 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 sermon, Confusing God and Government. Hmm. And um, <laughs> if you haven't heard it, I, I recommend that you take a take a, it's about 38 minutes long, take a good gander, because... 
it's not like Jeremiah told any lies. No, I would he really like to. Name. I would like to talk to him. <laughs> he did a bit of name calling. <laughs> you know, especially in hindsight, you know, seeing how things developed. Just you know, something off the record. It's just politics. If you if you if you can't take a bit of name calling, then you ain't built for this. You know what I mean? No, that's true. He he, he referred to uh, in, some, in some comical ways. He referred to Clarence Thomas and and Condoleezza Rice and but um, the overall message. You know, I don't want I don't want that 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 shouldn't that shouldn't uh, that shouldn't smear <laughs> the message. The, the message essentially is that America hadn't been forthright. Hadn't been just, especially um, when you call yourself the land of the free and the mm-hmm. historical treatment of black folk, black people. And um, well, from day one with the natives, you've been fucking up. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're absolutely right. Absolutely you can't right. go literally across what you don't know is the ocean, the end of the ocean. Talking about you want, you know, freedom from persecution, your own, you know, you were looking out for your best interest, and the first people you see, <laughs> you try and screw over. <laughs> Hypocrisy. Thy name is. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> and so Barack Obama famously distanced himself from Jeremiah Wright. And, and in my, my and back That my should mind, have been your first clue, America. That should have been the first clue. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of sermon that you could hear at any black church. And that any black parishioner listening to it, they wouldn't find no problem with, right? You know, even a name calling piece. You know, it's it's almost entertaining a little bit. It's it's mm-hmm. it's, it's open fun. You know, we're not you know to mean any malicious by it, but you know when people are in taking certain positions, um, or they've aligned themselves, quote unquote, with certain people, uh, meaning uh, Condoleezza Rice, um, uh. You know, she's rolling around with uh, George Bush. Bush and Cheney. And and remember back then, if you remember 2003, it was widely believed that some funny business went on in Florida. Oh, yes. More than a little. So, don't get... I mean, it just happened to be his brother. (laughs) His state. (laughs) I'm just saying. Daddy was in the CIA. I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly right. And so, um, um, yeah. So the point is, so Jeremiah gives the speech, and then Barack Obama, during a campaign trail, had to respond to it, and he distanced himself from from, uh, from Jeremiah Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as he had, but Rob just said that should have been our first clue. Um, Meanwhile, at the same time, if you were alive and remember, Mike Huckabee, who was a uh, evangelical was all over Fox Airwaves being crazy as he want to be. So if you really want to talk about, you know, religion, the right wing at the time was still in full, you know, evangelical glory. They were still milking that cow. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) it it, it was really interesting. I mean, Jeremiah Wright, he put himself on the world stage. I mean, by being himself, he's up there in my, in my eyes with uh, Cornell West. I mean, one of the great folks who's willing to speak out on injustice when he sees it. You know, the courageous figure. 
Uh, history will remember Cornel him. West is nicer. He's not as direct. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely the more. They're both ministers, but he's more the consoling. He's more the intellectual, I guess you could say, right? Yeah, he's definitely. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like they're both intellectual. Yeah, academic. 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 Yeah. And uh, with the segue into our next portion, um, he talked about how America um, uh, uh, kind of um, they 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 got Mandela arrested, mm-hmm. right? Um, Nelson Mandela and and their interference in South African government. And you know, if you grew up in the '90s at all. And you remember how big Nelson Mandela was, kind of there was a huge push to get him out of jail, and how when he came home and did his world tour. I mm-hmm. mean, he was he was bigger than Michael Jackson, Nelson Mandela was. Basically. And um, which uh, is a perfect segue into the next part. So this is also the anniversary of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. So this was championed by Mandela. And so essentially what that was, was that there had been a whole lot of atrocities in apartheid, and that as a form of healing, that um, the people who perpetrated some of the criminal acts, uh, they accounted for it. They admitted it. Um, they were able to admit their wrongs to their victims, uh, I guess in exchange for no punishment. Right? Which is insane. So that's what I want to ask you, Rob. <laughs> Uh, do you think that, but that is something that America has never done. Right? We've never had a truth and reconciliation with America. Now, it didn't really, there were complaints, there are complaints about how it was uh, administered in South Africa. But do you think something like that would work here in the United States? I don't think it worked there either, but you'd have to ask an African about that. I mean, look, there's distinct differences if you notice when it comes to the idea of quote unquote justice. You know, if there's a egregious wrong done anywhere on the European continent, motherfuckers go to the Hague. An egregious wrong done in Africa, eh, you might go on CNN. I'm seeing a double standard here. You know, as the empire of the world right now, I don't really expect our leadership to go and admit any wrongs. At this point, getting a Nobel Peace Prize is like the precursor to committing a fucking genocide. Okay, it's like your get out of jail free card. We've completely flipped. It's we're living in a 180 world right now. I'm not. I'm not even joking about the Nobel Peace Prize. Look at the last couple of people who won it, and where they're at right now. You know, they're making a big deal about this whole Myanmar thing. I remember when N. Suksuki, when she first was still locked up, she got her Peace Prize. And what did she do when she first got out? Start slaughtering people. Yeah, those little brown people on those in, on those islands. The Rohingya that they're talking about now? She's been killing them. Okay. That's not what new. We don't know. We don't know. I get the name. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. But the the leader in Myanmar, she was locked up for a long time. Oh, she, was like there. she was in the papers all the freaking time when she was locked up. And once she got out and got her peace prize, it was real quiet when she was running stuff because she was busy slaughtering people. Same thing. Not for nothing, but Obama got a peace prize for nothing. And then what did we do? Kept the global war on terror going. We, we don't even bother lying with class anymore. We don't even make up new lies. We sell the same old propaganda and just like put a new fresh coat of paint on it. Like nobody's supposed to recognize this shit. If you're over 20 years old, you're going to remember this lie. 
So, like, in other words, is there a way that truth and reconciliation is going to work? You need truth and reconciliation. You don't get either one of those things. Unless you're having a straight-up, like, war crimes trial, then you're not going to get to the bottom of it. If you're sitting there telling me that you oversaw and orchestrated a clearly racist system designed so that the my, a racial minority could exploit the majority, there's no other cause to do this. There's no other reason behind the way that your government functions. That was its purpose. And you mean to tell me that you're going to get off scot-free? And you have not had truth or reconciliation. I don't give a shit what title you call this. Cool. You can't do that and expect the society to actually move forward in a healthy way. So I'll follow that up with saying, you know, one of the, the critiques of America is that, um, you know, I've spoken to, I'm sure you may have too, I've spoken to white folks who say they don't see color. What does that mean? It's easy. <laughs> If you come from the group where everything is pretty much the baseline, for you to not see culture or color or whatever you want to phrase it, then that's easy because then your life doesn't change. There is no difference for you. To those other people who may be affected by that difference, they don't have a choice in whether or not to see it. So, perfect example, like you said in your grandpa's day, if he were driving around and he didn't see color, it could get him killed. If a white person was driving through the exact same town and they didn't see color, it didn't fucking matter. That's the difference. It's not as extreme and in your face today, but those lines are still there. So to say that you don't see color or you don't see culture, that's because it doesn't affect you. You can see it. You can recognize it. You can respect it. You can understand it. You can do all those things. But to just not see it, that means you're just being oblivious. So the idea that since we, that shows a, a clear uh, attempt to avoid the discussion, sure, right? It's uncomfortable, so there are clear attempts to avoid the discussion. So would mm-hmm. truth and reconciliation, where people, uh, well, one of the reasons why you incentivize somebody telling the truth is because you're saying there is no repercussion. Would this the discussion on race be progressive? Be, be, but again, again, what is the point at that? Then what's the fucking point? What is the point? The point is to have the discussion and to actually hear the other person. It's, so, you know, it's like when you discuss them, someone's going through a stressful point in time. They just mm-hmm. need to be heard. I remember Martin Luther King said... Who's stressed out at this? Wait a second. Who is stressed out at this point in time? The people who were orchestrating an apartheid state or the people who were victims of that apartheid state? I'm confused. The victims are stressed out. Okay, so why the fuck do I care about the people who were orchestrating it? Because one of the reasons things that stress out the victim is because the victim the victims sometimes feel that they have to suffer in silence and be invisible. So now if I put you in the center and I give you Mm -hmm. attention, right, um, and so I, you know, we're able to just actually discuss issues. Now, um, does that move us forward because we're actually able to discuss it? We no. Wonder, yeah. Discussing it doesn't move you forward. Having a resolution, an actual problem, or a solution to a problem moves you forward. But how just you talking about it doesn't. But you see, that's, you, can, you have to do both. We have a lot of, we have a lot of fake psychology and pop bullshit that says just get it off your chest but then don't do anything about it 
just getting just talking about it doesn't solve it. So if you have a, an entire government body, an administration laid out, these people were elected, they had ministers appointed, you had an entire government structure. And you mean to tell me that they didn't know what was going on? Why would you get, why would you be in, you're not innocent. So why would there be no repercussions? Uh, because uh, you, you want to have a discussion. And so it's like this. We have legal records. You don't need a discussion. Who was elected? Who passed this legislation? Were these laws enacted? What were the repercussions? What was the result? I don't need you to feel sorry about it. Gotcha. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a question because I'm trying to understand. Uh, what it's an academic it's, exercise to blunt people's academic. righteous anger. Well, That's well, what it uh, is. It's bullshit to keep the guillotines at bay. Well, James Baldwin famously says it, right? Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it's faced. So because of the avoidance to discuss race, that's why we have this reoccurring nightmare that we have. So if we face it, um, that doesn't say we fix it, but at least we face it. We still haven't faced it when you have folks talk about, I don't see color. But we have a reoccurring problem in the West, quote unquote, of, ne- of never facing anything anyway. You have an entire sick ass society that sat there and will joke openly about it's It's a shared cultural joke that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. What does that tell you? Okay. Everyone gets the joke. Everyone knows that there should be a comeuppance. There should be a serious reckoning somewhere in our society. Something up at the top is truly sick. But for whatever reason, we can't put our fingers on it or our hands around that throat. So we're stuck to laugh about it because that's the best we can hope for right now. And you see the same pattern replicated in the discussion we have on race. Why do black Americans, why have, why has our subculture reacted the way that it has in the American culture, no matter how much we contribute to it? Why have we gotten stuck in this mode of going along to get along instead of advancing the way we were? It's for the same reason. The same reason you could have a figure like Barack Obama, who was quote-unquote transformative, but didn't really transform anything yeah 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 uh, yeah it's just a it's just it's a, it's a I never agreed with it especially of course you're right um there were complaints about the truth and reconciliation in South Africa itself but uh in trying to understand or 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 draw parallels between what they have tried over here and tried over here. I'm a systems guy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying I want to do something just because it's in my imagination. I'm actually reflecting and seeing it in history. That's how I know it can be done. Yeah. And that might be a limitation of myself. That might, might be a show a lack of creativity on my part. No, I mean, you look at what systems that. work and you improve on them or you can see what yeah, someone's so tried before. And that's why I'm looking at it like, okay, 
uh, what was the thought process behind this, right? Uh, but I don't think you can compare the two directly anyway. They're dealing with a different situation inherently. And look at how it worked out. You look at them now, they're still dealing with problems with, you know, they were their last president tried to completely seize of the land that all the white farm owners still had. And the public was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't I think, think that was the president trying to do that. That was a political was party that? trying to do that. That was a political party, okay. Yeah, not the president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did that in Zimbabwe with mm-hmm. Robert Mugabe. He did it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> he did it. Um, but not in South Africa. Yeah. Well, hey. Africa. Just saying. Yeah, actually, um, speaking of Robert Mugabe, uh, mm-hmm. Happy uh, Independence to the Zimbabwe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happy Independence. Today is uh, Zimbabwe Independence Day. Zimbabwe Independence Day, formerly Rhodesia, when it was mm-hmm. <laughs> under outside rule. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy birthday, Zimbabwe. Um, oh, wow. Jeez. Time flies. Um, that flies when you're having fun. You know, just to close out, last final piece. Uh, there was a there was a meeting today. Um, so um, I have mentioned to you again in past episodes that if uh, anybody who lives in Queens, Southeast Queens, you guys are familiar with the waste transfer station, and um, right, you could smell it for miles. <laughs> and uh, what was uh, there was legislation passed that was supposed to minimize, it's called the waste equity bill, so that no one community would take on too much waste, right? Um, and so that was supposed to spread it out throughout the mm-hmm. city more equitably. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, your former opponent, <laughs> well, district leader, and our current city councilman uh, cut a deal, wants to cut a deal to expand the the uh, the capacity for royals against community wishes, and so he supposedly had a meeting today, a uh, community meeting, uh, where he didn't really give community enough time to attend or inform. He gave us forty eight hours notice, and um, I was in class while it was going on, but I had people in the meeting, and uh, they didn't even take any questions. Uh, it was three politicians congratulating each other on what great job they're doing. <laughs> it was an absolute joke, as, as I'm being as being told to me. So, if you don't have a representative government, what exactly? What are we doing? Chaos, absolute chaos. And, and but the, the challenge here is this: um, how do we select these guys? What are we doing to select these guys? Because I'm all ready for anybody up. else. He's turned out. So what are you going to do to a man who only has, uh, what, six, seven, eight months in the left in office? Because he can't be the target. The party has to be the target. They have to, we literally have to make them either be replaced or they have to be beaten into a point where they, they will at least listen to their constituency. And right now they don't have any, they see it as the constituency not having an alternative. So unless we literally replace them on some level within the community, start taking away services, replace them, supplant them, 
in the minds of the people that they're well, not representing. You're talking about the party, to plant the party. Yes. Let Meeks run around in his cheap-ass suits, bragging about his tacky-ass house all he wants. If the people understand that he is not, not just him, but the thing that he represents isn't working, they'll gladly leave it alone because we talk to these people. We know for a fact that they're not happy with it, but they don't see any alternative. They don't see any alternative. This is, this. well, you know, I'll be, I, you can t- t- I'll be honest with you. I'm not even sure if they're not pleased. I believe if they got something for themselves and the rest of the community went to the hell in the handbasket, that'd be fine. I think that's the real challenge. The biggest, vote, the biggest block of voters we have, even with as with even as active as our community is voting, you still have the largest group of non-voters. Why? Because they realized they looked around and said, "This is a fracking joke. Why am I going to waste my time?" And they're not wrong. You're right. Uh, hard... yeah, yeah. We spoke last week about the battle of the bullet, <laughs> so. <laughs> And and but that's the that's the choice that these no count knucklehead Negroes are purposely imposing upon the neighborhood because they realize okay if I they have sucked up to the power position so that they realize there is no alternative yeah that's why the segment I we were going to do before before we timed out was the missing you know anti war left. All of that is connected, like you were saying before about the workers and the socialism and the black advancement and the real black institutions and the anti-war movements. These were all connected. These are all the things that got King shot for a fucking reason, because they're all the same topic. But these neoliberals who pose as Democrats and think that you make you believe that they're your friend, they've decided, well, if we can just put on a show. The people really don't have anywhere else to go. That's why their last, this last campaign to install Joe Biden was just vote blue no matter who, because why run on anything? I'm just going to lie to you anyway. Yeah. That's what we're left with. So no, I'm done. It's not a question of, well, what's your policy? Fuck you. You're with that team? I already know what your policy is. It doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to do it anyway. Well, my only, my, my only pushback is that is, you know, just like nothing else, nothing is monolithic, monolithic. Every Democrat isn't part of the Democrats, right? Every Democrat, if you are in office as a Democrat and you are not willing to go against the Democrat Party leadership, then you're not really going to be able to do anything anyway. Okay, then uh, there are people willing to go against the party leadership. Yes, we do have that. There are people willing to go against party leadership. In the Democratic Party, we do have that. Um, that that's not enough, obviously. But we do have that. They may not be organized uh, as. Well, a, then what good is it if you're not organized and you can't stop anything? The point is the, the party is moving with an agenda. You can still stop it, but you would need a coalition. You need an actual voting bloc. The reason you would have something like. Perfect example. We were talking before, last week about John Lewis and his how he was able to become a, a powerful pers- personality in the Congressional Black Caucus. But then what does the Congressional Black Caucus end up doing if you fill it with personalities like John Lewis, who was the compromise? We've compromised ourselves to the point where it's pointless. 
Hallelujah. Yeah, okay. I agree with that. Your quote-unquote Democrats are basically Republicans, so what difference does it make? You don't have a representative. Not this fighting for you. That's about our time. (laughs) You have any closing thoughts, brother? Brother Rob? No, I'm going to leave it where it's at. I hate them bastards. (laughs) Yeah, man. Uh, So thanks again for tuning in on the Wake Up Radio, The Appeal. Um, a.k.a. Walker's Appeal. I am Miles Bryant, my co-host Rob Williams. I'm going to leave with the words of A. Philip Randolph. Freedom is never given. It is won. Hallelujah. Uh, next time, brothers and sisters, Africans and Africanettes, Africans and those who are African adjacent. <laughs> Peace. I need some get back. You, the people, have the power. The power to create happiness. Let us use that for a new world. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us all unite. OTWTube.com, uncensored free speech platform. Flawed individual. Cindy Ashby Production. Ashby Production. Ashby Production. Ashby Production. On the wake up.